Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And we have a really interesting conversation today with Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, as well as about 40 other books. And very interesting conversation, but I think it's left me and Jen both a little bewildered about our own writing. Well, it's just, it's not left me bewildered. It's left me ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> The exact opposite of what she would have wanted. I know, but it's left me like, because every time, I mean, everyone will hear this. Every time I was, I kept trying to find a third way, you know, it was like, (laughs) she was like, she was like, so you just have to be disciplined basically. And you just need to be consistent and you need to do these things and you will, you know, then you will not get stuck in writing and writing will become a pleasure and a joy and, you know, spring forth. And I was like, but wait. (laughs) <laughs> I know for people like me and you who are so married to the idea that writing is torture, the fact that this woman says like writing is a delight. Yes. I just love it. It's just the best. No. I mean, look, it's amazing. This woman is so prolific and she's written every kind of thing. Yeah. Imagine giving yourself that kind of permission. I I can't, but I mean, what it really brought up for me, and I don't know if this brought this up for you is just, and I was just saying this to you before we got back on how inconsistent I am. Like, it's astonishing how quickly I will drop like a whole new, like I will have a new routine that is working and I'll just fucking drop it in three days. Because, because it's back to the thing I was talking about the other day about the the Zen masters all having like the, the grooves in their brains going the right way to be happy. Like we, 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 we've worn a lot of grooves in our brain around certain kinds of behavior. And so going back and trying to be like, oh, I'll just have a new habit is actually very hard. And you have to give yourself some leeway to let it happen. I mean, I think that you have to give yourself some leeway and like, I, I just, I don't know how to do it. Like I'll start meditating and then 
within a week I stop. I just let things slide. I have like a meal planner on my fridge. Like it's just going to collect dust. Like I don't know how to, uh, and this might be an interesting episode for us, like how to really maintain habits. I, 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 cause also I get kind of bored. Well, they say it takes a certain, I don't remember what the certain time amount of time is, but they say it takes a certain amount of time to make a habit sticking to it for that certain amount of time so that you can get to the point where it becomes a habit. I guess, but is there anything you've done your whole life that you always do? I have nothing. What habit do I have? I mean, what none of the habits that I have, like what I drink coffee every morning, first thing, that's not really a, a habit worth mentioning. I guess that is a habit. That is something you do every day. I mean, something I, you know, I go out for a walk at least, you know, twice a day. Right. But that's because by necessity, the dog needs to go for a walk. Yes. And she was talking, it's very interesting because one of the things we didn't talk about that much in the episode are these walks that she thinks are very important to take. And the walks must be without your phone, without a dog, and without another person. I know. I thought that was interesting. The other thing we didn't get her to define, because we are not like professional radio hosts, is we didn't get her to define artist date, which is, it can be by yourself, it's like just, or it can be with another artist. And it's just to be experiencing art. And that comes up again and again on this podcast, you know, the importance of feeding your head. Yeah. No, it does come up. It's, it's the Ray Bradbury thing. Oh, I tried that, by the way, the Ray Bradbury thing where you listen to what read one essay, one poem and one short story every night. I lasted two and a half nights. I fell asleep midway through on the third night. But that's also ambitious. Like I, I do think there's something about small manageable steps that gets you to have better habits. Yeah. She said two pages of writing a day. Yeah. Two pages. That's it. Separate from the morning pages. Yeah. Morning pages, which are non-negotiable. Um, anyway, I, I was, I was thinking that the artist way is for everybody and the artist way is for non-writers, but we did gear the conversation very writerly and I'm sorry, non-writers, but I still think Julia Cameron is a really just interesting figure. She also read us a poem, which everyone will hear, which was a poem that she wrote. I, that was unexpected for me. Yes, that was an unexpected moment in the podcast. (laughs) That was a surprising surprise. Um, I will say one thing that happens when you and I talk to uh, women who are older than both of us is we become children together. (laughs) We do, don't we? (laughs) I was like, does she think I'm smart? Does she think I'm smart? Does she think I'm smart? I was like, she likes Kim better. She likes Kim better. Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, I think we should just get into it. Yep, I agree. Let's just get into it. I'm real I can't believe we got her for the podcast and I'm so excited for listeners to hear her. Our guest today is Julia Cameron. Julia is an American teacher, author, artist, poet, playwright, novelist, filmmaker, composer, and journalist. She is best known for her international bestseller The Artist's Way, which was published in 1992. Julia has also written many other nonfiction works, short stories, and essays, as well as novels, plays, musicals, and screenplays, and more than 40 books in all. The Artist's Way has been translated into 40 languages and sold over 5 million copies to date. Julia's latest book, Write for Life, Creative Tools for Every Writer, was published in January. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to see you both. 
I wish you guys, I wish you guys could see Julia's lipstick. Julia's wearing a really good lipstick today. Yeah, you look amazing. You look amazing. It's a good lipstick. It usually matches my glasses, but I had eye surgery, so I'm wearing dark sunglasses now. Oh, no. They act as a shield uh, for a little while. You're not allowed to wear makeup, and I feel like not allowed to wear eye makeup. Oh, dear God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. So Julia is instead wearing very stylish black glasses, which I like a lot. And your hair looks great. You just look great. She got on and I was like, wow, this is, she is really showing up for this interview. (laughs) Well, thank you. So I have to say, I read your last book, uh, Write for Life. And even though I'm a writer myself, I felt like, wow. Julia makes writing seem like such a fun profession, which is not really my experience. Do you find writing fun? I do find writing fun. I find it to be an enjoyable activity. Uh, And I hoped in the book to dismantle some negative mythology that we have around writing that says it should be difficult and painful and squeezed like water from a rock. Yes. It's it's almost like writers like to tell themselves and each other how hard it is as as, as a like a um, a badge of honor that you're not if you're not really suffering you're not producing any good writing. Well, and this is a mythology that I'd like to change, uh, and that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, I was amazed in the book. You said writing is happy, a potent mood changer. Writing tutors us in joy, and you talk about how much you love to write, like we were saying. And to me, this is just so radical. The to to, to approach writing as a joy and not torture. So, how do you go about turning that negative thinking around? If that is how you think about writing, well, this is where I sound like a fanatic, and I say, please do the early tools in the book: writing morning pages, going on artist dates, going on walks. Uh, and I think what I find when people use the tools, is that the negativity begins to slip away. uh, And it becomes, uh, we become used to writing down our first thoughts. uh, And as we do that, we discover uh, a a sense of glee because we're we're being sort of naughty. Hmm. Uh, we're, We're saying, this is how I really feel. Right. And is there, do you think that, that there's something naughty about that? Like, this is how I really feel? Like, there's something that's um, that's radical about saying, this is how I really feel and not being afraid of it. Yes. I, I think we have a, a pervasive mythology around writing that says it's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be painful. That great art is born from great suffering. Uh, And what I have found is that great art can be born from joy. Hmm. I have a poem I'd like to read uh, that, if that's all right with you. Of course. Please. It was born out of bliss. Uh, And so it's sort of dedicated to the muse. So here we go. I'm not prepared for this. I can't pronounce this bliss, the way we flow, the knowing where to go. This ebb and flow, can't we take it slow? Where are the walls, the shadows in the halls? This light, can it be right? 
Where does it come from? I've known a different sun, walked a different earth where air was used for grieving. I think we're leaving. Before we met, I knew your face from stars and stones. I knew your name from wind and grasses. Before we met, the red earth held my heart. The sky cradled my dreams. The forest floor was my green bed. These were what I bled before we met. Now that you are here, I'm wed to galaxies. Our sky does not contain me. The sun is a candle to what I see. Sure as a cliff, the walls drop away. So I think this is the experience we have when we're writing. Uh, sure as a cliff, the walls drop away. Wow. I, okay, so... So it's a, it's a daily discipline. It's an accountability with yourself. It's, it's following the tools. I have a question for you. Do you ever get stuck? Well, I have a good toolkit. Okay. So what I have found is that humor unsticks me. Mm. So uh, I think that humor is the most potent tool that we have against being stuck. Can you explain that a little more for me? Because I find that really interesting. Well, humor is a potent weapon. Uh, and I had, a, um, I had a book published called The Dark Room. It was a murder mystery. Uh, and I got 19 good reviews. Uh, and the 20th review was negative, And unfortunately, it was in the New York Times. Oh. Uh, and I found myself thinking, oh, dear God, I should wear sackcloth and ashes. I've been shamed by the New York Times. Uh, and the reviewer was somebody who didn't like the fact that my detective hero liked Carl Jung. The reviewer <laughs> evidently was a Freudian. <laughs> so um, I was very depressed. And then I thought, wait a minute, I have a weapon. And the man's name was Bill Kent. So I wrote a little poem that went, this little poem goes out to Bill Kent, who must feel awful the way that he spent his time critiquing Carl Jung instead of on the book I'd done. Uh, and immediately I had a sense of power back. Mm. Uh, and I encourage people to write bad poetry. Uh, <laughs> It cheers you up. Right. I mean, because I guess I guess what we're talking about is like, you know, fear, vulnerability, the feeling like you're not good enough, the, the feeling that the work is not good enough. I mean, all of these things are so foundational and, and, and can be really hard to overcome as and they're, they're total blocks to creativity. Yes. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, And that's why the essays in the second half of the book are addressing all these blocks. Can we talk, I want to just back up for a minute and talk about the fact that The Artist's Way, which came out in 1992, continues to be um, found by new generations and, you know, went right up the bestseller list again during COVID. 
if you had to if you had to just isolate one or two words to explain the success of that book, what would they be? Well, I think the artist's way is successful because it's talking artist to artist. It's not scolding, it's not looking down, it's not preaching, it's saying, this is what I know and this is what I can share. Uh, and I think people connect to the heart of the book. Uh, and I, I think it's just been number three on the bestseller list again in Los Angeles. And I feel you, you're from Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, and Los Angeles is a difficult town because so much of the mythology around writing uh, is so much a part of the culture in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, and um, there's a spirit of competition uh, as opposed to camaraderie. Uh, right. And what happens is that people think, oh, so-and-so has said it better than I can. And I need to be original, and I need to think of something that hasn't been said before. Right. And that's a potent block. Yep. We need to worry about being authentic, about being ourselves. We are the origin of our work. Our work is, by definition, original. And if it echoes someone else's work, well, that's wonderful. That means there's a consensus on a certain point. I had a book deal that I returned the advance for, for, for a variety of reasons, one of which was that I did get very stuck. But something I found myself doing during that period of time was going into bookstores and feeling completely overwhelmed by how many words had already been written, how many books had come out and been ignored. It felt really hard to get over that. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying about blocks and thinking that's... I, but okay. So wait, okay. So there is this moment where you're in flow with your writing and it's a beautiful, it is a beautiful moment when you manage to sort of unlock all of these, all, all of the blocks, everything that's in your way, right? Say you've been consistent, you followed the tools. Are do you revise your work a lot, Julia? How, how, what is your revision process like? Well, that's the end of the book. I carefully explain how to do revisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what I do. But I think what we need to talk about uh, is laying track. And I'd like to go back for a moment uh, to talk about her returning her advance Kim. Uh, and trying to buy some freedom for herself. Uh, and I think what you're talking about uh, of being overwhelmed by how many books have already been written uh, and feeling like your book was a shadow uh, is something really powerful. Uh, and this is where uh, I would say do morning pages. They dismantle negativity. They miniaturize your sensor. And it sounds to me like you were listening to your critic uh, that the critic was perched on your shoulder saying, this isn't good enough. That is very true. Or even, it was a memoir, so it was also like, what makes you think your story is is worth telling above other stories? And of course, it's not the story, it's how it's told. But at the time, it, it felt very overwhelming to me to feel like, who are you to write this? So it sounds like you had encountered a toxic critic well, I, you know, a toxic critic inside of myself or a toxic critic out in the world? It sounds like both. 
Well, I think I, I, I've, I've had, I don't want to turn this into a thing about me, but I do. I, I, <laughs> I, I was in a, a pretty big job for a while and had a lot of criticism thrown my way. Um, so when I returned to writing after that job, it felt especially vulnerable because I was showing the other job was just running a magazine. This was talking about the contents of my soul and my heart. And the fact that I knew there was an audience out there for maybe not being supportive of me, you know, an audience that might not be supportive of me, that that became overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you need to collect what I call believing mirrors mm -hmm. and believing mirrors are friends who are generous, supportive, enthusiastic, uh, and you need to be able to show your book to a believing mirror and ask that believing mirror, what are the strengths of my draft? What did you like? Mm -hmm. And when you get positive feedback, uh, you find yourself building on the strengths. Uh, and I think... Uh, it just sounds like you had a terrible time. It wasn't fun. It mm -hmm. wasn't fun. And it, even though I think it's a book that I do honestly think didn't need to be out into the world. It, I, I was telling things about my personal life that were maybe too personal. I do think, you know, you can't, you can't do something like return a book advance without feeling like a little bit of a quitter. I returned a book advance. Oh, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I had a book that... I didn't think my press would like, uh, and so I sent them back my advance, which was like $30,000, uh, and um, I found myself thinking, oh, everyone's going to think you're crazy, but it felt good to have the freedom and to have the book back, uh, and I, I think one of the essays that I talk about in the, in the new book uh, has to do with vulnerability. Uh, and I believe that when we are vulnerable, people connect to us. So I'm not sure that you were too personal. Uh, it sounds as if you were brave, and the book needed to be shown to people who could appreciate your bravery. Thank you. Well, I did have I did have some good readers, but I don't know that I shared everything with them. You know, I, I shared the things I thought were the strongest. And not necessarily the things that were a little more thorny, but you know, Jen is actually my best reader. Uh huh. Well, we have we've been yes, we've been editing and trading pages for a, a long time at this point, twenty years really, almost. Let's take a quick break from some ads. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I want to know, Julia, what is, because you're still so prolific. What is an average day for you like? How much do you write every day besides the morning pages? Well, it depends on what the project is. Mm -hmm. If it's a play, I can maybe write three pages. Okay. If it's prose, I maybe can write two pages or a page and a half. Uh, and um, I write my morning pages in the morning, and those are non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then usually sometime in the afternoon or evening, I sit down to write on my project. Uh, and I I think that it sounds like 
you read the section on accountability. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it became a, a, a whip for you. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm not accountable enough. Uh, and that's why I think you have to read all the way to the end of the book. Uh, and yeah. then it becomes more clear that the daily amount of writing isn't a drag. Right. Right. I also think it's important for writers. Like I was talking to a, to a best-selling author once and he said, I work from 11 to one. That is my writing day, 11 to one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, two hours, but two hours of solid work is solid work for a writer. That's a day's work. I probably don't write two hours. I do the page count sort of as a way to feel more positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, set a time limit, like you must write for two hours. I believe in something I call grabbing time, which is uh, that we have a mythology around writing that says writers need to be disciplined. Yes. Mm-hmm. Writers need to have a- accountability. Writers need to have a set time that the, that they show up and pin themselves to the page uh, and it should be ideally I, people would say to me well if I had a year off then I would write a novel and I say maybe you would maybe you wouldn't yeah right but if I have 20 minutes maybe I can grab a thought so I think that the tools that are at the beginning of the book, called Priming the Pump, mm-hmm. Yes, are about grabbing time, grabbing, if I only have 20 minutes, what would I write? Uh, and sometimes when you write for just 20 minutes, at the end of 20 minutes, you have a little bit of gasoline left in your tank, mm-hmm. and you want to go further. I, I, I wonder if part of the success of this method is that the main three things you know, the three big, you know, cornerstone things, the walk, the morning pages, the artist dates, and the walks are all manageable steps. They're all things that anybody can say, I can do this. Yes. That feels really crucial. I recently had a critic say, Julia's tools are simple and reliable. Uh, and I, I thought it was supposed to be an insult, <laughs> <laughs> but I realized, oh, goody. I do think tools should be simple and reliable. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I have to tell you, there are two things about my mother I did not know till very recently that both surprised me. One was that she saw John F. Kennedy in Houston the day before he died in Dallas. And the other was that she's been doing morning pages for ages. She did a workshop with you in New York, maybe at the Open Center or somewhere like that a number of years ago. And, and does her morning pages every day. I was, I was actually describing you to her, and she's like, honey. <laughs> I know who that is already. <laughs> you know, you've also written books, um, Julia, about prayer and spirituality. Can you talk about the role of spirituality and prayer? How does it play into the creative process for you? Well, I think uh, that when you write morning pages, you come in contact with the source of wisdom that seems a little radical to you. Uh, And I think when you go on an artist's date, you find yourself experiencing a sense of joy. 
Uh, and this sort of flies in the face of the idea we have of a punishing God. Instead, we find ourselves thinking, oh, this is marvelous. Uh, and the, oh, this is marvelous uh, becomes a part of your writing practice. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we live in an age where it's not often said, oh, my inspiration comes to me from a higher power. But I think using the toolkit, you do find inspiration coming to you from a higher power. You do find a, a sense of the universe as a believing mirror for yourself. Uh, and I, I do. Um, I ask my friends to pray for me. Uh, and sometimes people who are secular think that's cheating. Like, <laughs> like oh, you mean you actually believe in, in prayer? And I say, well, yes, I do. Uh, and uh, I think that writing is a spiritual experience. I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about all the atheist writers I know, and yet I don't think that's such a contradiction to say that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of taking this a little bit further off that, but I wonder if... If writing is a spiritual experience, then maybe the things we prioritize about writing, which I think that we can be really outcome oriented um, and, you know, sort of fixated on, you know, where's this going to go? What's the publication? How am I going to get this published? Or, you know, just instead of being process oriented. And I wonder, Julia, if you'd categorize all of your tools as sort of being reorder, reorienting to process rather than outcome. Well, I think they do. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, I was listening. Uh, it it's sounded like you had a book that was quite terrific <laughs> and you lost faith in it. Yeah. Uh, and you did a U-turn. Uh, and I, I think uh, that this is common uh, and I, I have a tool that I call the wall, uh, and the wall is something that occurs in writers, usually when they're about two-thirds of the way done with a project, the wall rears its head, Fuck. and it's filled with doubt, and it says, maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. Maybe this book won't get published. Have you thought about the odds? Uh, and what I believe is that thinking about the odds is a drink of poison for creatives. Uh, and what I have found about the wall is that it's like those old 40s movies about convicts where they're trying to break out of prison uh, and they don't succeed by climbing up the wall because that puts the spotlight on them and they get shot. So, so they say, the way to get past the wall is to burrow under it. Wow. So when you're two-thirds of the way through a project and doubt rears its head, you say to yourself, I'm willing to finish this project by writing badly. Mm. And the minute you give yourself permission to write badly, you have the freedom to write. Oh, my God. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Because you have a you have a chokehold on yourself. I'm in revisions of a memoir right now, and I've choked myself because I'm so afraid that I can't finish it. 
I've totally choked myself. I have no freedom anymore. I had so much joy in so many parts of the writing process. And I'm about exactly there, two thirds through, and I'm I'm choking. Right. So you have to say, I'm willing to write badly. (laughs) But that's so hard. I mean, it's not for me, it's not hard to accept that my writing is going to be bad when I've got a first draft. I will let myself write anything because I do feel like you can't choke yourself that early in the process. But after like getting it ready for your editor and doing revisions to it that moment, go back and say, I can write poorly. I can write badly. That feels like a a, a harder step. Mm -hmm. But the bad writing leads to the good writing. Always, if you're lucky. Well, I think it does. Yeah. Because you let yourself, you let yourself say things. It's like, um, we talk all the time about how we say things on this podcast we would never write because our critic is always telling us, take that line out. That's too personal. That's too bitchy. That that's, that's a cliche. That's, you know, you, that's a bad sentence. Oh, this one's running on for too long. It's just your edit. The, the editing in, in real time is, is, is creates a kind of paralysis. Well, I think you have to divide it up into projects and say, okay, my job now is to finish a first draft, uh, and I'm willing to write badly to finish a first draft, and I'm willing to just lay track writing whatever seems to come to mind. Uh, And then you move to a second draft process, uh, and uh, what I have people do then is outline what they've written uh, so that they get a a sense of what they've said and where they've said it. Uh, And you lay it like a train track down. On page one, I introduce the hero. Mm -hmm. On page five, I introduce the problem. On page 15, I introduced his first futile attempt to solve the problem. Uh, And so you have a a draft that's a rough draft, mm-hmm. then you outline it, and then you go back to the top of your track mm-hmm. and you say, well, I have a character show up on page 16 and not come back to page 97, so I, I need to put the character in a little bit higher. So your second draft process is more intellectual, mm. and it takes into account uh, sort of what the critic has been saying. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So you, so you bring the critic around to your side. You, you figure out a way to make peace with the critic. Yes. And again, this is something that happens with morning pages because your critic will start saying, you're being negative. You're being petty. You're being boring. And you say to your critic, ah, Thank you for sharing. (laughs) And what happens is that as you sort of welcome the critic and thank it for sharing, it begins to become miniature. And instead of being the voice of doom that says, this is terrible and you believe it, uh, you hear it as a wee peeping cartoon character who says, this is terrible, and you believe it. And I have people do an exercise where they give a name to their critic. Mine is called Nigel, (laughs) and I'm 75 years old, uh, and I've been writing since I'm 18, 
and Nigel has kept pace with me. Mm. So people say, how can I get rid of my critic? And I say, well, you don't really want to get rid of your critic, but you want to miniaturize your critic so that it's a cartoon character who's habitually negative, like the bad relative at the party. You know, it's the same thing, it's slightly different, but it's the same thing they say to pain patients, people who have chronic pain that isn't going to go away, people who are in a car accident and their body just got crunched some weird way. They tell you to write letters to your pain. They tell you to like, you know, so you accept the fact that the pain may in fact be there forever, but you're living with it instead of being in constant battle with it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about this because you said something I thought was interesting and important to hear, which is that we don't have to travel to India, say, for inspiration, but can find inspiration in our own backyard in the everyday. What's the trick to unlocking that? Is there a trick? The trick is the same trick. I'm being a fanatic here, and Mm -hmm. I'm saying, please do morning pages. Can we talk about the morning pages? Because I found I I, I am an imperfect doer of morning pages. I'm, I'm working on my morning pages practice. I find that after about a page and a half, all the stream of consciousness is out. And I thought it was very interesting that you said that the pay dirt doesn't come until the second page and a half. Mm-hmm. And is that because it becomes that much harder? Is that because you're you're allowing yourself to be more scream of consciousness? What what makes that so? I don't know. All I know is from observing people that the first page and a half is pretty easy, and the second page and a half is a little bit tougher. Uh, and I think of it like going to therapy. You know, you go to therapy, uh, and it's a fifty minute hour. And you spend 45 minutes talking about your messy house. Uh, And then in the last five minutes, you say, oh, and then he hit me. (laughs) And your therapist says, wait a minute. We just spent 45 (laughs) minutes talking about your messy house. And now you're telling me you've been abused. So what happens with morning pages is that you write and you write and you write. Uh, And then toward the end, you find yourself blurting out your issues. So it's it's just like with therapy, you you have to get below the surface. I'm curious about um, because this is this is a, a podcast about getting older, and I'm curious about if getting older has changed your relationship with your work. It's become more fun. I think when I was a young writer, I was trying to be brilliant. Hmm. Uh, And I wanted every sentence to be perfect. And I wanted each sentence to flow perfectly into the next sentence and have a brilliant and cohesive thought. Uh, And that was exhausting. Uh, And then what happened was that I got sober. I had been using alcohol as a crutch. uh, And uh, I got sober. And my colleagues said, now let the higher power write through you and try and be of service. <laughs> and I said, what if the higher power doesn't want to write through me? And they said, well, just try it. And I tried it. And what happened was my prose straightened out. Uh, and when I was trying to be of service, I was writing more clearly. Uh, and then what happened was my career took off because I was no longer trying to ask my writing to do two things, one of which was be brilliant, and the other, P.S., was communicate. 
I, and in, instead, I was saying, communicate. Was it hard to let go of the brilliant part? Not that your sentences aren't brilliant, but was it hard to let go of that kind of perfectionism? I know you write about this in the in the new book as well. Well, I think that it was hard to trust that something would want to write through me. But I experimented. I put up a sign by my desk that said, hmm. okay, God, you take care of the quality. <laughs> I'll take care of I'll take care of the quantity uh, and I began pretty quickly to have an experience of writing flowing uh, and writing that that flows is joyous. Can we talk about this this I, I I'm not even sure what my question is so maybe you can help me Jen but I'm thinking about like the higher power and use and employing the higher power in your writing and also thinking about having a muse and where one begins and the other one ends. You know, I, I, I know writers who believe very strongly that the muse through, runs through them sometimes and not others. Do you get what I'm trying to ask, Jen? I think that I understand what you're trying to ask. And I think that, I think that what Julia is going to say to this is do your morning pages and the muse will sort of always kind of be there. But I, I'm curious what you do think, because if we follow your steps, Julia, then writing is a much more consistent practice. Is that, is that right? Is that, I mean, these ideas of muse or not muse don't really matter. Well, I don't think I distinguish between the muse and the higher power. I think I just say, well, when I got sober, they said, you have to believe in something. And I said, you don't understand. 16 years of Catholic education, greased slide to agnosticism or atheism. And they said, well, you must believe in something. And I said, mm-hmm. well, I believe in a line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. I believe in that creative energy. And they said, well, why don't you think of that as your higher power, Mm. creative energy? It was both a a muse and a higher power. It was a force. It was an experience. I feel like it's almost almost like those, you know, you get so stressed as a writer. You get so obsessed with being brilliant. And it's almost like, thinking of, of a higher power or a muse or whatever is a way to kind of take some of the air out of it, to diffuse it a little and not make it feel like it's so much all on your shoulders, but that there's an aspect of spirituality or chance that comes into it. Well, a lot of times I write, uh, and it's a process that I, I hope to have conveyed in the book of listening, uh, where a sense of direction is important. Uh, if you're not trying, if you're trying to be brilliant, you're trying to think something up. Mm-hmm. You're striving. You're trying to reach to the heavens, and you're hoping that you find something brilliant there. So it's a strain. Uh, and if you think of it as I'm going to write something down, then you are are listening. Uh, and when you listen the strain goes, uh, and you go from one idea to the next. Uh, and I, I think it's important to talk here uh, about handwriting. I ask people to write morning pages by hand, uh, and I write my books by hand. Uh, and I do that 
because there seems to be a direct connection between the heart and the hand. Uh, and, you know, with computers, you have the deadly delete button. <laughs> right. The deadly delete button. It's so true. I was going to ask you about that. I wondered if the handwriting was just habit or if it, if there was something behind it, and, and there is for you. Yes. And, you know, I, I think uh, we have research now that says that when we write by hand, we open up more neural pathways. Mm. But I find it through observation that if I try and write by computer, I get speed and distance, but I don't get depth and authenticity. Mm. When I write by hand, I get a, a clearer picture of what's actually going on. I wonder, Julia, what is it that you still want to do? Are there projects that you have that you, that you, what do you, I mean, what do you still want to do? You've done so much in your life. Well, that sounds daunting. Oh God. Okay. Right. I'm not supposed to put the pressure on it. That's it. <laughs> I can't help it. My next book is called Ambition Monster. I, it's, it's very apt for me. Um, I just wonder, are there projects you're working on right now that you're excited about? So creativity is just a, a daily pleasure for you. So it doesn't really matter. You're not sort of project oriented in that way. Well, I'll get an idea. Wouldn't it be fun to write about that? And I'm very lucky. I have a publisher, Joel Fotinos, who's been with me for 27 years. So he will say, what are you thinking about? And I'll say, oh, I've been thinking about listening. And he'll say, listening? I'd like to hear more about that. And so I'll write a book called The Listening Path, which is all about exploration of listening. And right now, uh, I've been in a period of stress. Uh, I changed assistants, uh, and I discovered th that I had been blind to some chaos that was sur surrounding me. I was writing my pages every day and praying every day. But I went back and reminded myself that morning pages should be about anything and everything. Then I heard, so write music. So I'm writing music. Uh, and I I think if you go to my website, juliacameronlive.com, you'll see plays, movies, musicals, uh, and they all came about because I had a little itch to try and write about X. Uh, and I think uh, we have another piece of mythology we should probably talk about, mm -hmm. which says writers should not change genres. Writers should write about what they know. Uh, and I have found, actually, that changing genres kept my writing fresh. So, so <laughs> I wrote a crime novel, and then I wrote a romantic comedy. It's amazing. It's so it, You've been incredibly inspiring and given us so much to think about. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Julia. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your books. They've meant so much to, I know, so many people and also to both of us. So thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I wish you both great passion and love for your projects. Uh, and 
that you'll find yourself some believing mirrors uh, and you'll find yourself coming to each other with a sense of, oh, wow, this person is amazing. I, I hope that too. I hope that too. And everybody should be buying your book, Right for Life. Um, it's amazing. And we will put it uh, where to find it and where to find all of your work in the show notes. Thank you so, so much for this. This was such an honor and pleasure. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. Apple Podcasts particularly really helps people find the show. If you want to support the production of the show, we are on Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We also have merch. You can get merch at T Public, and that is in our show notes. We have hoodies and t-shirts and totes and phone cases and so much more. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at EIF Podcast. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook with a private Facebook group. You can follow Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. You can email us at everythingisfine, the podcast at gmail.com. And the show is mixed and edited by the wonderful Natalie Rivera. Thank you, Natalie. And we'll talk next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.